Hello, friends. Welcome to Resting Church Face, a podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Allen, and this is episode 15. And this week, we are going to be talking about people-pleasing, why we do it, how to stop doing it, and how to make peace with never being people-pleasers again. Ever. So sit back, relax, maybe get out your journals, and let's talk about this. So I have struggled with being a people pleaser since, I don't know, the womb. I mean, honestly, though, I really think a lot of it goes back to the way that I was raised. My parents were both in ministry, and I just always felt like I had to be good. And I always had to smile and put people at ease. I needed to be likable because I felt that my parents' ministry Everything that I did was a reflection on them or, you know, I had to be perfect. And a lot of that I don't think was ever actually said by my parents, but it was an expectation I definitely felt. And I touched a little bit on this in the friendship episode, but growing up in a motorhome, we were always in a new environment. I was always the new kid. So being liked was really important to me. And then by the time I hit middle school, I think that was the first time that I had really experienced rejection like in my face. Like, I don't like you because X, Y, Z. And instead of asking myself, were the reasons that they said they didn't like me valid? Or do I actually like these people? I really internalized the rejection and their reasoning. And I began to think that, well, they don't like me because something is wrong with me. And so people-pleasing became this attempt to be everybody's perfect version of myself. It's almost like that Taylor Swift song from Folklore, Mirrorball, where she says, I'll show you every version of yourself tonight. That was me. I was sort of a chameleon. I could just be any kind of friend that you needed. If you needed someone to have fun with and be kind of crazy, that was me. If you needed someone to be an audience and just listen to you talk, I could do that. If you needed someone to be really serious, I could do that too. And this carried on from friendships into being that kind of student, that kind of employee. And I'm not saying that all of the relationships I had at that time were fake, because they weren't. But I had a really hard time distinguishing the people-pleasing version of me from the actual me. And honestly, this is something I've just started to unpack in the last, I don't know, five years. It's not been that long. So I'm not speaking to you as someone who is like way on the other side of this and is giving you sage advice. I'm someone who still struggles with this, sometimes daily. I have to stop and ask myself, are you doing this because you want to do this? Are you reacting to this because this is how you actually feel? Or are you doing that thing again, that people-pleasing routine? So let's talk about how I finally figured out what I was doing and how I have attempted to really stop it and to heal from that. I think people-pleasing really went into hyperdrive when I got into college. I went for a year to Sanford University And when I started college, I just really thought it was going to be the start of everything changing. Everything was going to be better. I was going to reinvent myself. I was going to be, you know, just like the Brady Bunch movie, the new Jen Brady. It was the new Amanda Allen. And, you know, surprise, surprise, I got there and I was exactly the same. (laughs) I struggled with all of the same issues. I decided to major in music and I was studying voice. And so when we got into our first voice lessons, we had these group lessons. And our teacher, 
Paul, that was his first name, had a, a real complex all his own with a lot of different issues, but he really did not like my voice very much. He only wanted this very dramatic soprano, which I cannot do even if I tried. But I really tried. <laughs> I wanted to be the Bugs Bunny with the horns on his head, Broomhilda type voice. But I sounded a lot like Snow White when I tried to make my voice sound like that. So I almost ruined my voice by trying to become another voice entirely. So that was kind of the beginning of that. So I realized that I wasn't going to be able to win their approval in the music department with that kind of singing. So I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll go into the drama department and I'll try out for the musicals. And so I tried out for a ton of musicals and I was terrible. <laughs> I was really surprised myself because I was like, I'd always thought, oh, this is my thing. And it absolutely wasn't. I have a very clear memory of trying out for Guys and Dolls. I did the audition, the singing part, it was fine. It was okay. The acting, not so great. But then they had a dance audition, which, you know, I had read about it. It said it in the flyer that there was going to be a dance audition. I did not realize that the people that were going to be trying out with me were like, you know, dancers. And I have PTSD from this audition. Every time I hear the song, Crush by Jennifer Page. Sha la la la. Do you know that? If I hear those opening notes, I'm like, I'm sucked right back into that moment where there is a girl in a leotard in front of me and I'm on the front row of like accomplished dancers and she's yelling, pot beret, kick a ball change, step ball change, crawl on the floor, crawl on the floor, roll over. It was, it was awful. I was terrible. And so while Jennifer Page is in my ear being like, doesn't take a scientist. I can't listen to that song to this day. But all that to say, I couldn't please them in that way either. And so that was an issue too. And at some point, I quit asking myself if I even wanted to do the musicals. It was now a point that I had to prove that I was good enough. I could do this. I could please the people involved. I could be a good little actress. And so it began to snowball from there. And so I sort of went back to a middle school way of thinking and my friendships really began to suffer too because i began to think okay all of these failures that i'm having i'm you know not making good friends or these guys that i'm liking are not responding they're rejecting me they all have one thing in common and that one thing is me i am the problem so in order to fix this problem i have got to be better. I have to be prettier. I have to be skinnier. My hair has to be better. I have to be more accommodating. I can no longer have a lot of opinions, especially when it comes to guys, because if I have too many opinions, then I'm going to be annoying. I need to be more accommodating. I just need to be an audience. Let them talk. If I have friends, I just need to go along with it. Um, I can disagree in my head and I can journal about it, but to their face, I need to just be pleasant and be the life of the party and everybody will love you that way. And of course, none of that worked, but that doesn't mean that I didn't keep trying. I've had body issues pretty much my whole life, and that will be probably a whole other episode. But I just, most of the time, am very aware of my body. I'm aware of the size that I am, the space that I take up, and not in a good way most of the time. But there is one area of my life that I have never been self-conscious, and that is when I am singing, specifically in a church setting. When I am leading worship, that is one area of my life in which all self-consciousness goes out the window. I feel the most me. I don't think about 
my body. I don't think about the way that I look. I am just worshiping. And I feel like it is the place where I am the most myself. And I want to make sure that I don't make this sound like I'm being braggadocious, <laughs> but it's just an area of my life that I'd never worried about because I had done it for so long. I can't remember a time that I had not been singing in church. I worked in a church for a really long time. I was their interim contemporary worship leader for a time. It just never occurred to me that there would come a time when I wasn't allowed to sing in church. And so in 2014, I joined a really, really big church in the South, and I'm, I'm not going to say the name of the church. And I loved this church. I still love this church. I loved the congregation. I loved the leadership. I loved the music. I loved the worship team. And I really thought this was going to be the place that I was going to call home for the rest of my life. And it was the one place that I would probably be able to let down this guard and just be myself. And I auditioned for the worship team. I made it. I was really excited. Things were going really well. And then they hired a new worship leader to come and be on staff. And he was going to be the head of our worship team at the campus that I was at. And when I first met this person, there was something off between us. I felt a tension and, you know, that gut feeling where you just feel like something is not quite right. But that people-pleasing part of me rose up again and I was like, no, Amanda, it is, it's you. You're feeling weird. There's nothing wrong with him. It's your problem. You know, push that down, make it work, make him like you. And the way that the worship team worked at this church was that in order to lead worship, you had to go through a class which prepared you on the way that they go about having worship leaders on their platform, which I actually think is a pretty good idea in, for the most part, because it is a big difference between a small congregation to now you're you know, leading worship for hundreds, sometimes thousands of people. You're on screens. You have to have a lot of energy and a lot of knowledge and ways to do that. So I think it's a good idea. But the way that this worship leader started to run this class became almost a competition. It was to get on this roster. You had to be in his good graces. And I began to realize that we were going through cycles. They would do, you know, semesters and I wouldn't be on it. And then I wouldn't be on it. I wasn't, you know, in the worship lineup. I had auditioned to play piano and to sing, and I had made it in both, but I was just playing the piano. And then this worship uh, leader, and we'll call him, we're just going to call him R. We'll just say that, R. He came up to me and he said, hey, you know, I heard you singing. I love your voice. And I was like, thank you. And I thought, oh, okay. So now I'm finally going to be able to get into this class. I'm just so excited because I wanted to be able to you know, do what I felt called to do and get an opportunity just like everybody else was on the team. And he said, what I'd really like for you to do is to just be our vocal director. I'd like you to take over the whole vocal coaching portion of the worship team. You would help me with auditions and you would lead the vocal teams on how to be good background singers. And you would really coach them on vocal lessons and things like that. And at this time, I was also teaching voice lessons. So I felt really comfortable doing this. And I was like, absolutely, I would love to do that. And he said, you know, and then when we have our worship leader class, I'll get you in there too. And I was like, well, that's that's great. But you know, I wanted to serve. I really did want to do anything I could do to help. And so I got installed as the vocal director 
in the church in this campus that we were at. And I want to be clear, that was a big honor, and I took it very seriously. I was so thrilled to be asked to be the vocal director at the church, and I loved it. I loved being around the worship team, and I still have friendships that came out of that season. We still talk. And so I loved everything about that. But I began to notice that everybody that made it into the vocal leading class, the the worship leading class, looked a certain way. I'm just going to be honest about it. They did. They were all slim. They were fairly young. Most of them were in their 20s. I was in my 30s, early 30s at this point. And they just didn't look like me. I was a larger person and I was very aware of it because I began to notice that everybody else that was leading worship was not large. In fact, they all looked a very similar way. But then R began to come to me and he was asking me to talk to other members on our team and asking me to tell them that they needed to dress better. We had a lady that was older on our team that played the bass and he wanted her to shop at (laughs) H&M. And I remember saying, like, she's not going to wear skinny jeans. (laughs) That's just not going to happen. He's like, well, she just, she needs to dress a little more with the times, a little more modern. And he began just making comments constantly about people's appearance. And I began to get really paranoid because I thought, well, if he's talking about them, you know, what does he think about me? And I felt like I was pretty stylish, but I definitely, you know, I wasn't wearing skinny jeans. That just wasn't something that I was into. And I began to think pretty seriously that I was not getting into this worship leading class because I was overweight. And so I made an appointment with him and I went in and I was like, hey, I just really feel like maybe this is why you're not letting me sing. And I'll never forget, he you know sat back and he crossed his arms and he looked at me and he said, I don't have a problem with your weight. I think you have a problem with your weight. And I think that it really is going to affect you in finding a husband and being a mom. <laughs> yes, he said that to me. And what did I do? Did I stand up and say, hey, that's not appropriate. That is none of your business. No, I said, okay, (laughs) because again, something rose up in me that was like, you have to make him like you. You have to prove that you can be who he wants you to be. And you want to be a worship leader. You feel called to this. You feel like it's important. And maybe God is using him to, you know, make you healthier, make you skinny, make you prettier. And so I said, okay, what do I need to do? And he said, you know, I feel like, you know, my wife really loves to work out in the gym. I think maybe you should start working out with her. And I was like, okay. So I began to meet with R's wife. And I would meet her at the gym at about five o'clock every morning before I would go to work. And she would work out with me. But a lot of times she would work me so hard that I would almost throw up. It was miserable. Our wife and I had nothing in common. We weren't friends. It just felt uncomfortable. And I kept doing it because I so wanted to prove that I could, that I could be good enough. I could do this. And so I would go into church and every time I would enter the building, I felt this anxiety that began to tug at me because 
I knew that I was not being who I was. I began to censor everything I said. I worried about every conversation I had. I was trying to be holy. I tried to use the right vernacular. I tried to do life with people constantly. And I was, you know, using words like that. And I began to get texts from R that would say, I saw this picture of you and you're looking really good. I can tell you're really losing weight. Did I say that was inappropriate? Nope. I felt good about it. I was like, he is finally seeing that I am, I am doing the work. I am trying my best. And he even stopped me in between services one day and he said, I just want to tell you that when you lose this weight, guys on this team are probably going to want to date you because you're going to look so good. <laughs> and I was thankful. And I'm ashamed to admit that now, that I was so grateful for him pointing out the error of my ways and helping me to be a better person, that he was going to get me to this next level. And maybe not only would I be a worship leader, but maybe a guy would even like me as if I would want a guy that would only like me if I was this idealized version of someone that I wasn't. But that's where I was. It was so unhealthy. It was so toxic that I was grateful for it. And then it came time for the new worship leader class to be chosen, the people that were going to be in it. And I really thought this time I was going to be in the class. And the list came out. I was not on the list. And I was crushed because I had been trying so hard. I had lost weight. I had changed my fashion sense. I had even worn skinny jeans, which is honestly the antithesis of everything I believed in. But I had done it. And so I went to him and I was just like, why am I not again on the worship leader list? And he was like, well, I just don't think you're there yet. You just you got to keep trying. And I remember thinking in that moment, I don't think I'm ever going to be good enough. I don't think I'm ever going to get there. And I was so sad. And at that point, I think things really started to take a real downhill turn because I just began to feel persecuted. and I began to feel like I couldn't do anything right. And instead of confronting that or talking about it with R, I just began to try harder to be better. And then like all bully stories, because let's be honest, let's call it what it is. R was abusive spiritually and emotionally, and he was a bully. There comes a moment when you cross the bully and they turn on you. And I did. I made him upset. I'm not even going to get into what it was because it was a ridiculous thing, but he did get angry at me and he began to punish me. I began to lose opportunities and I felt like people were talking about me and I began to get really paranoid. And I will say this, I began to get really paranoid and I don't think everybody was talking about me, but I think that is the state of mind that I was in. And I felt like everybody that knew me knew this version that R had presented and it wasn't me. And so I just was over the top trying to prove that that wasn't me. And then one day, R called me into his office, and he told me that he wanted me to step down from being the vocal director. And I was just devastated. And when I asked him why, he said to me, there's just always been something about you. That's not what we're looking for. And I 
left feeling like I had just failed at everything, that everything had been a waste. All this, all the work that I had put in to try and making the worship team what it was and, and the, the service that I had tried to do and the good intentions I had, I, I doubted everything about myself. I thought that I had just let everybody at the church down. And not only that, I felt like I had let God down. And I just was in turmoil. It was all I could talk about. I felt like when people, and I, I do think this, when people saw me coming, it was like, oh, here we go. <laughs> because I was a real downer <laughs> to be around, to be honest. And so at one point, I, you know, I really thought maybe I could turn this around. Up until this point, I had prayed my whole life, but I don't think I'd ever really felt God direct me to do something. Like, you know, where a thought pops into your head and you know it did not come from you until this moment. I was in a prayer meeting at the church when the thought popped into my head, you need to go talk to R. And I was like, nope, <laughs> because I had been avoiding him for the past like three weeks. I was hurt. I was angry. I was ashamed. I did not want to have anything to do with him, but I could not get rid of this thought. And that was all it said to me was, you just need to go talk to him. But there was no like, here's what you need to say. I just knew that I needed to talk to him. So I prayed about it and I thought, okay, I'm going to go at the next prayer meeting and I'm going to ask him to talk to me. And when we go talk, I'm going to ask him if we can just start over, that maybe we were both misunderstood and, you know, our intentions maybe were good, but we just need to put it all behind us and start again. And guys, here is where the beginning of the end of my people pleasing started. I went up to R, I tapped him on the back. He turned around and you know how sometimes you have to prepare yourself before you see someone that you don't really like. You like put on a, a smile or a fake, I don't know, a mask. When he turned around, he didn't have time to put the mask on before he saw me. And in that second, it was just a split second when he saw me, I saw pure hatred on his face. And it startled me. I remember I took a step back. Because I realized he not only disliked me, he hated me. And I don't know why. I don't think I'll ever know why. But I knew it. I knew it in my gut. And I was startled, but I said, hey, can we talk? And he smiled, but it was not a nice smile. And he said, I don't think so. And I turned around and I left the church and I didn't go back. And yes, that's a sad story. But in that moment, I realized there was nothing, there was nothing I was going to be able to do to make this person like me. He was always going to dislike me. And there was nothing I could do to change it. And I also realized that I did not like him. And I had been trying so hard to get approval from and please someone who I didn't even want as a friend. And also someone who genuinely wanted bad things for me. And I hate to say that, but I do think that we do need to be aware that there are people out there that are actively not rooting for your best interests. He did not like me. He did not want to see me succeed. I don't know what all of the inner workings of his mind were. And at this point, honestly, guys, I don't care. 
But it was a real, as Oprah would say, aha moment for me when I realized that all the people pleasing that I was doing, a lot of it was just fruitless. Why was I doing it? I remember going, I I was crying and I was upset, but it was also tears of sort of relief. I felt freedom for the first time. I had been released from something that I had been fighting. I didn't even know I had been in such pent up emotional states. And I now was free from that. It felt really good. And I remember sitting in my car and thinking, why have I been doing this to myself? Why do I do this? Something has got to change. So I have a lot of regrets about that time of my life. Mainly, I think I regret that the people at this church that I still really do wish all the best for and love never got to know the real me. I think the version that they met was someone who was super anxious all the time and was really trying to be a version of herself that she wasn't. I wish I could go back and introduce them to me now. And who knows, someday I might be able to do that. And I also don't wish any, you know, ill will towards R. He has since moved away. I don't expect that I will see him again. But I do know that we are probably best not in each other's lives. But there are some lessons that I learned from this experience that I am super grateful for. And I'm sharing that story not because I want a lot of, oh, poor yous, but because I really feel like if I can help anybody to change their trajectory and change their relationships and ask themselves why they're doing the things they're doing. Why do they feel like they need to be people pleasers? And if they can come out of that, then fantastic. So the first lesson is that not everybody will like you. And that is just a fact of life. Not everybody that you meet in life is going to like you. And it is hard when you have been conditioned to be good and to be pleasing and accommodating That is a hard lesson to learn, but it is just the truth. And it's okay. Not everybody is going to like you. And if someone has made up their mind that they don't like you, there is nothing that you can do to change it. And that is a hard, hard thing, but it's something we have to be able to accept. We have to find a way to be at peace about that. The second lesson is that sometimes people will dangle a carrot in front of you and they'll say, If you will do this thing for me, make me happy, I will give you the thing that you want. So for me, it was that I really wanted to be a worship leader. And so R would dangle that in front of me. But then the list keeps growing. You start realizing that now they want you to do this and they want you to do this. And then once you've done that, they want you to keep doing this. Or now I want you to shift over here and do this. And you realize that you're never going to be done It's never going to be enough. You're going to just keep doing things for them until you collapse. They're never going to give you what you need and what you crave the most. So it's fruitless. The third lesson is maybe the hardest one for me to accept. You know, I've always heard my whole life, believe the best about everybody. And I do believe that is true. We should believe initially, especially the best about everybody. But as Maya Angelou said, When someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time. And there is truth to that too. There are people, as much as I hate it, who are mean. And there are people who are not going to be nice to you. And they are not going to actively pursue good things. 
on your behalf. And we have to accept that. We live in a fallen world and human beings have a range of emotions and personalities and flaws. And one of our biggest flaws is sometimes we are cruel. And there are people that you are going to encounter in life that are cruel to you. And we have to be able to learn how to recognize those people when they show up in our lives. And we have to be able to shut it down. It doesn't mean that we humiliate those people. It doesn't mean that we, you know, give it right back to them. But we stop the relationship. We walk away because it's not beneficial and it's toxic for both of you. And the fourth lesson is a question that I ask myself all the time. When I feel that people-pleasing urge rising up inside of me, this is what I ask myself. Do I like this person? And it is a simple question, but it is hard for me to answer sometimes because sometimes I think that I like the feeling of a goal, of approval, a project, of making this person, winning them over, making them like me. I like that more than I like the person. So I have to really ask myself, do I like this person? Do I really care what they think of me? Why am I trying to win their approval? Is it because I just want the win or do I really want to keep this person in my life? And like I said, it seems like a simple answer, but it's not, especially if you have lived your life for the most part seeking approval. But it is a really necessary question. And when you begin to answer that question, yes or no, it really clears up a lot of things for you. And lastly, I think this is the most important lesson I have learned I ask myself two questions. Do I like myself? And is God pleased with me? And if the answer to both of those questions is yes, then that's all I need. That's all the approval I need. If I like myself and I feel like God approves of what I'm doing, I don't need any other validation. And I wish I could tell you that I have completely conquered this part of my personality and that I never people please. That is absolutely not true. I wish it was. There are times that I'm still very reactionary and I will settle back into old, comfortable habits that are not necessarily beneficial, but I'm trying. I try to ask myself these questions. I try to go through this list. It helps me. It calms me. And I feel like I'm getting better. I'm at least aware of it. And that's a big step in the right direction. So if you struggle with people pleasing, just know that you can come out of it. There is absolutely hope because even though we feel like we have these behaviors that are ingrained in our you know, very soul, it is never too late to change them. We can step out of something that harms us and into something that helps us at any time. I watched a documentary on Hulu this week that goes so well with this episode. It is called Pretty Baby. It is the story of Brooke Shields. Starts when she is a baby and goes to current times as an adult now. And, you know, we talk a lot about Britney Spears right now and the, the things that we put her through in the 90s and early 2000s. And we, we look back on that and we're all ashamed of that, you know, that we thought it was okay to ask her the questions we asked or to say the things that we said about her. This story of Brooke Shields, I didn't know because I was a very small child. A lot of it, you know, starts in the 70s. Um, I really, you know, didn't remember Blue Lagoon and things like that. But the questions that we asked her, the things that they made her do, her mom allowing her to be in movies that are just unbelievably inappropriate. 
I just, I could not get over it. I teared up several times watching her talk because it's an extreme case of people pleasing to the point where she didn't even realize that a lot of what she had been going through was really just abuse um, until she was an adult. And the struggle that she has gone through to reclaim herself. And the fact that she seems to be a stable person who is really normal makes me so happy for her and proud of her because you know it took a lot of work. I will say, be aware, it is a very adult topic situation. So just be aware of that. If you have children in the house, you probably don't want to watch it with them unless you know you really explain to them what you're going to be watching because it does make you uncomfortable. But I think it's important that we see things like this and we know that that is our history, especially the way that we treat a lot of women and we need to do better. So I really do recommend Pretty Baby on Hulu. All right, guys, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for hanging out with me again this week for a pretty vulnerable discussion. Thank you for listening to it. Thank you again for following and subscribing and telling your friends about it and leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. It means so much to me. If you would like to find me on Instagram, it is super easy. I am at Resting Church Face. I hope you have a fantastic week and let's get together again soon.